0: I want you to think about this question. Maybe this doesn't apply to you, but I think you would agree that it generally applies to some people. Why do we hate spoilers? Right? Why do we hate spoilers? At least I hate them. Seriously, rabbit trail, y'all need to learn some social media etiquette. When you're watching a TV show live, you need to realize that I'm not watching it live and you don't need to tweet and tell me what happened. But why do we hate spoilers, right? Because we know that knowing the ending greatly affects your experience of the story, right? To get it caught up in the story, to really get someone caught up in a story, you have to let them believe that they don't know how it's going to go, right? That's how you really get someone caught up in a story. And for a a make-believe story, maybe for a movie or something, like... It's fun not to know so that you can get caught up in the story. But the thing about real life (laughs) is knowing the end could actually mean life or death. So it's kind of important. If there's one thing that I hope you have gotten from Revelation as we have moved our way through it, if it has shown you anything, I hope it's this, that Christians, those who are in Christ, live in the light of a future that is certain. It is so certain that nothing you can do can affect it. It is so certain that no matter who is president of the United States cannot affect it. Imagine that. Christians live in the light of a certain future. Do you want to know why Revelation is such an enigma to people? Do you want to know why so many people get bogged down? What is Revelation about? Why is it so weird? When are the end times? Why do people wig out at trying to interpret it? Why do so many people think that the whole book is only about the end times? If you've heard anything from from me this semester, I hope you've heard that that's not how I've approached this book. If you want to answer those questions, you need look no further than Revelation 20. I don't think it's too hyperbolic to say that it is the most hotly debated and discussed chapter of Revelation. And spoiler alert, I love Revelation 20. And the reason I love it, and I hope you're going to see this tonight, is because looking at Revelation 20, I think I'm going to be able to lay out for you my entire approach to the entire book this semester. Okay? All encapsulated in this one chapter. Okay? And I want you to understand this at the outset. Many God-loving, Bible-loving, and Jesus-loving people disagree about direct meanings of some of the things in this chapter. And the letter as a whole. Right? Uh, I I hope you've heard me be honest about that. Uh, There are many things where many of us who love Jesus can say, you know what? You might be right and I might be wrong. Or the other way around. But they're also, at the same time as we've moved through Revelation, and we'll see also in this chapter, there are some things where we have to say, you know what? We cannot disagree about that, and we don't disagree. We actually agree on that, and we'll see that by the end as well, okay? What I want to present you with tonight is what time and time again has proven to me to be the most compelling and natural reading of the entire book of Revelation, and Revelation 20 specifically Okay, at the same time, I'm going to admit this about my view. It runs contrary to the overwhelmingly popular view of the interpretation of this chapter. But again, I think it's been proven to me the most natural and compelling reading of this chapter, okay. But regardless, what we'll end up seeing by the end uh, is what none of us will disagree about. We'll agree, and we'll be encouraged by it. I hope you will be too. So, if you would, take your hand out or your Bibles and read with me here, Revelation chapter twenty. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Alright, I want to look at three things simply as we try to understand what this passage is about and by implication, I would suggest you the whole book of Revelation. First, I want to look at the thousand years, then I want to look at Satan bound, and then I want to look at the end game of thrones. (laughs) Haha, get it? Yeah! Alright. I'm hip, I'm popular. Um, First, let's look At the thousand years, all right? Here's the thing about the thousand years. And I really, in four years on this campus, I really haven't sensed this from y'all. And I don't know that it's that you haven't thought about it or maybe you just have an assumed view of it and you don't even know it. But this used to be, especially when I was in college, this used to be the thing that people talked about. People didn't want to talk about predestination. They didn't want to talk about those things. They wanted to talk about what is your view of the millennium. You want to know the only place that the millennium is mentioned? Right here in this chapter as far as explicitly being called a millennium. Here in this chapter is the only place. But it used to be the thing that people wanted to talk about. They want to know, what is your view of the millennium? Do you think it's real? When do you think it will happen, right? Why would they ask all these questions? Because, well, a lot of things are said here. Uh, Christ reigns. The devil is bound. Um, uh, Some other people in Christ apparently reign with him. How and when do you think this will happen? Well, here's some answers. Of course I think it's real because we just read about it. Right? It clearly says there's a thousand years where these things will happen. Uh, but kind of parallel to something like predestination, my first answer, I'm so willing and open to talk to you about that. But like my first answer usually when people are like, so like, do you believe in predestination and because you're a Presbyterian? And I'm like, no, I believe in it because it's in the Bible. Um, the word is in the Bible. Okay, that's what I mean. It's a joke. Ha. <laughs> anyway, so the question is not if with the millennium. The question is what is its place and what is its purpose? Very generally, very, very generally speaking, because from these two subgroups, there are a bajillion also other subgroups. But very generally speaking, you can basically come down on one of two sides of the millennium. The most popular view is this one, that this millennium, whatever it is, whenever it is, occurs after Jesus returns to rescue Christians out of the earth, so therefore it is called a premillennial view, because you believe that Jesus will come before this millennium takes place, before he begins reigning, uh, yeah, before the millennium starts, before he begins reigning, before we start reigning with him, uh, Jesus will come, so therefore you think Jesus' coming is before the millennium. Okay, Satan will then be bound, Christ will reign, all those things, right? And this is kind of how, just very simplistically, I'm not trying to create a straw man, because I'm not necessarily going to knock these things. But generally, this view views the end times like this. That Jesus will come and he'll take his people from the earth, popularly popularly known as the rapture, Okay. Here's the thing about the rapture. I'm not going to say anything more about it because there's no even hint of it in Revelation 20. And we're looking at Revelation 20 tonight. Uh, The rapture, people infer it from other passages. The next thing, people think that after this rapture, there's going to be this this intense period of suffering known as the tribulation that lasts for seven years. Again, that's not in Revelation 20 the end of this, Jesus returns for Armageddon and defeats all his and our enemies, and then he sets up his rule and he binds Satan for a thousand years until he's released for a short time at the end of it. And then God puts, again, a final end to Satan's work and throws him into the lake of fire. You can kind of see how those points somewhat follow Revelation 20, but not all the way exactly. It's a very popular view. Um, Just a show of hands, because I feel like some people have said, who's heard of the Left Behind series? Okay, okay, good bit of you. Very simplistically and very generally, I'm not trying to build a straw man. That is the view espoused in the fiction work Left Behind, okay? It is a fiction. Y'all know that's fiction, right? Okay, anyway. Now, why do I not take up this view for myself? I want to lay it out for you very directly and simply. First I want to take up the question of chronology. When does this millennium happen? Okay? I would suggest to you that most people would try to that, that say that it happens the millennium is after Jesus comes because they think that's the way Revelation 19 and 20 read. But here's the thing, you cannot determine the 1000 years simply because of the location of Revelation 20. What do I mean? Because, if I told, as I've told you, is my approach all semester. I believe the most natural reading of Revelation is that all the visions of Revelation are not the chronological timing in which things will happen in history. Rather, the chronology of Revelation is the chronology, the order in which John saw what he saw. Do you get what I'm saying? He says, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. He doesn't say, then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. Those are not the same thing. He says, then I saw. He says it at the opening of Revelation 20. Okay? And again, I've one thing I've tried to repeatedly say is that what he sees throughout Revelation is history specifically church history, the things that happen in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming that everything in Revelation is talking about what's happening in the here and now and how to understand it, with an eye towards the end as well. Let me break it down for you. uh, There's seven cycles of this. The first one's in Revelation 4 in the throne room. It begins a cycle through the seven seals. Then there's a second cycle that starts in Revelation 8 through seven trumpets. Then Revelation 12, there's the third cycle with the dragon seeking the child and his offspring in the wilderness. Revelation 15 is the fourth cycle through bowls. Revelation Revelation 17, we looked at a few weeks ago, the whore of Babylon. Revelation 19, we looked at last week, the fall of the beasts and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then Revelation 20, tonight, begins the final cycle, the fall of Satan. And what I'm suggesting to you, seven cycles, all telling us about the same thing, just with different pictures. What is the same thing? How history will unfold in between Jesus' first coming... In his second coming. Okay? Because, as our subtitle of our series has been, heaven and earth collide. Heaven and earth collide for us, not to show us a step-by-step, play-by-play of the future, but to give us a picture of why things are happening the way that they are happening in the here and now. Questions like this. If Jesus is king, then why, if I follow him, do I feel like so many other things rule over me? If Jesus has defeated sin, why do I still struggle with it? If Jesus has completely forgiven me, why do I feel so much shame and guilt in this life? Questions like that. Those are the things that the visions of Revelation have been taking up. We've seen it all semester, okay? And to back myself up a little bit, at the end of Revelation 19, we read about Jesus riding in on a white horse as a warrior. And we read at the Revelation, at the end of Revelation 19 that as the warrior on the white horse, he defeats all of his enemies. So, So ask yourself this. If Revelation 20 is the next thing that happens in history, who's left for him to defeat? That's my point. We're getting retold the same story, but now from a different perspective. There's my take on the chronology. The second one is the question to the literalness. I do believe that the millennium is real, but I do not believe it is a literal calendar 365 day a year, a thousand years. Okay? Ten, well, we've seen that numbers in Revelation are highly symbolic. Ten is a number of completion. Three is a number of perfection. So ten times ten times ten. Perfect completion. Thousand years. What does it mean? Symbolically, I think it means it's going to be a long time. That's the exact perfect amount of time that God wants it to be. And when he wants it to be over, it'll be over. Do you remember what Jesus said about knowing about the end? He said, not even the son knows, only the father. So here's the question. When do I think this is going to happen? And spoiler alert, this has my, been, my, been my approach the whole semester. I think we're in the middle of it. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, I hope you've picked that up. I think we're in the middle of it. The millennium that is described in Revelation 20, we are living it. We're not waiting for Christ to reign because we've been told that Christ is reigning. We're not waiting to reign with Christ because we're told that if we're in Christ, we are reigning with Him. We're in the millennium. How do I defend that? Well, I want to use Revelation 20. So let's move on. The binding of Satan. How do we know if Christ is reigning? Well, according to Revelation 20, we know that Christ is reigning when Satan is bound. Now, here's the thing. Some of you may say, well, that settles it then. Because how are you going to tell me that Satan is bound? Because Satan is doing a lot of things. He's still evil. He still has power. He still does a lot of dark things. There's still evil. There's still unbelief. He's doing a lot of things. So surely, he is not bound. Well, my first problem with that would be this. You're reading a lot into what John means when he says he's bound. And for starters, look at verse 3. John tells us very clearly why he is bound or how he is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations. I would suggest to you that at the coming of Jesus Christ into this world in history, Satan was bound and ever since Jesus has left this earth the gospel has gone forth in power and it will keep going forth in power until Jesus comes again satan jesus is reigning and satan is indeed bound jesus himself said as much matthew chapter 12 one of those countless times that the pharisees come to jesus and they're trying to trap him they're trying to um, they're trying to Catch him up and and accuse him then of being something he's not so they can kill him. That's all they want to do. And so they try to discredit him because he's casting out demons. And all these people are marveling at him casting out demons, right? Um, And so they say in his presence, in Jesus' presence, the only reason that he can cast out demons is because he's in league with them. He's on the same team as them. That's why he can tell them what to do. And you kind of imagine Jesus just kind of like laughing at that logic kind of stupid. Um, and so he says this in Matthew chapter 12, he says this, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then I tell you the kingdom of God has come. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his good goods? Unless what first he binds him. Same exact word Used in Revelation 20. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, if it is by the Spirit that I'm doing what you think, that you don't think I'm doing it by the Spirit, but if it's by the Spirit, then you know that the kingdom has come. Not will. You know it has. And what's the only way to plunder a strong man in his own house? To bind him. So what is Jesus saying that he's done? He is saying by implication that he is bound Satan. Okay. Another passage I've quoted often is Luke chapter 10. I find this fascinating. Um, that Luke, uh, Jesus sends out about 70 disciples. And he says, go out, heal people, and cast out demons in my name. And then in Luke 10, they come back and they're all amazed. They're like, Jesus, even the demons did what we told them. Even the demons are subject to your name. And listen to what Jesus says. I saw Satan fall like lightning. What is he saying he saw? He saw Satan cast down. Just like we read in Revelation 20. John, in his letter, 1 John, the same John that saw these visions and wrote them for us in Revelation, guess what he says the reason that Jesus came into the world? In 1 John 3, verse 8, John says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Not the reason he will appear, not the reason he will come back again. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Satan is bound. Jesus says that's precisely what was happening in his day and continues to happen to this day until he returns again because of his coming into the world. So... What is John not saying about being bound? He's not saying that Satan can't persecute the church. He's not saying that Satan is no longer like a roaring lion seeking whom to devour, like Peter says in 1 Peter 5. He's not saying that, Peter, that Satan can no longer scheme and disrupt unity within the church, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2. He's not saying that Satan can no longer disguise himself as an angel of light, like he says in 2 Corinthians 11. He's not saying that he can no longer hurl flaming darts at the people of God, like Paul takes up in Ephesians chapter 6. So what does John say then? Here it is. In between Jesus' first coming and His second coming, Satan will never be permitted to incite and organize the unbelieving nations of the world in a final catastrophic assault against the church. Yeah, I kind of I sent out a text that tonight was about Armageddon, and I feel bad for that because we're not really taking up Armageddon tonight. But I'm, we are talking about the end, which you associate with Armageddon, right? But what this is telling us is that Ar- Armageddon cannot happen because Satan is bound. It cannot happen. Until he's released. I think this quote's in your handout. The singular point of Revelation chapter 20 is simply to portray, in graphic terms, the spiritual restraint placed on Satan to assure the saints who are suffering that his design for deceiving the nations during the time of the millennium cannot be attained. He's bound. He cannot lead the world in wholesale unbelief in God. The gospel goes forth in power. And look, this is hard for us to believe because we live in America. And we feel like everybody's going, yeah, we're done with the Christianity thing. And to a large part, I think we're right. We live in a post-Christian world. And we need to own up to that. Your generation, I think, gets this. This is why you hate your parents' politics. Because they don't quite get it. Okay? That's a whole other sermon. Um, But... The thing about the gospel is it is going forth more powerfully in the world than it ever has in human history. Africa, Asia, all over the world, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are professing Christ for the first time every single day. Those are the estimated statistics. We don't know the actual ones. You should be encouraged by that. You should ask yourself if you're encouraged by that. Look at that quote again. The point of this chapter is to tell us about the spiritual restraint placed on Satan to assure the saints who are suffering. There's no better example of this than a guy named Joseph Son. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He was a missionary in Romania. My wife actually spent a summer in Romania. She loved it. She almost, uh, when we first started dating, she almost moved away to Romania, but I told her I wanted to marry her, so she stayed. Um, I got the better end of that bargain. Um... Joseph Son, though, was a missionary in Romania back when it was still an Eastern Bloc uh, country, suffering from the things that uh, people in Eastern Bloc countries were known to suffer under. uh, Brutal regimes, uh, secret police type situations. And he was a pastor, uh, and he was imprisoned because he was a pastor and because he was spreading the gospel. And one time during a very physical interrogation, I guess we could call it torture, he finally, in the middle of it, looked up at his the people assaulting him, and he said this What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is a counter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will do to me only what God wants you to do. And you will not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. (laughs) Can you imagine saying that, somebody beating you up? And then he says this in his memoir after that. He said, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Meaning Joseph Stone in that moment didn't feel like a victim. He was one, and he had every right to feel like one. He said, I viewed those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Here's a question. Whose will do the puppets do? Interesting. He knew it was God's will. This is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. Why? Because He is in control. He reigns. Not only does He reign over this world, not only does He reign over this cosmos, not only does He reign over history, He reigns over each and every circumstance in my life. Doesn't mean that I put on a happy face and think that everything is sunny days and rainbows, but it means that I know who is in control. Satan is bound. Final thing is the end game of thrones. The end game of thrones, a theme that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, pops up once again here in Revelation chapter 20. And here's the thing that I think we end with of what we take away from Revelation chapter 20. Something that it doesn't matter what view of your millennium you take. What Revelation tells us in the big picture, no matter your view of the millennium, is that there's things to be encouraged about and there's things to be sobered about. First, let's take the sobering part, okay? The sobering part is this, as I believe we've seen in each passage that we've studied this semester. The gospel will go forth in power through God's people by the power of his spirit for a determined period of time ordained by God himself. We can know that. And during that time, the amount of those who will follow the Lamb will become, as we saw in Revelation 7, a number that no one can number. And at the end of time, Satan will be released and he will do a work of historically significant and maybe to that point unheralded unbelief in the hearts of men and in the hearts of kingdom. And that time will include great suffering and much martyrdom, but it will be no different than right now. That those things are happening right now. Just because they're not happening to us doesn't mean it's not happening. So here's the question. Man, so I'm sobered. Satan will be released. There's going to be this gathering hostility. One last shot at God and His followers. How long is that going to be are we approaching it now? What, what should I be doing? And here's my answer. I don't know. <laughs> we may be in the middle of it right now. I don't know. But what do I know? I do know, look at verse 9, that according to the Bible, and verse 9 specifically here in Revelation 20, whoever this is and how many ever they are, we're told they're unmeasurable as well. They will gather for battle, but God will consume them in an instant. It's not going to be some struggle that we have to suffer through. We're already doing that. That is the point of Revelation, to tell first century Christians, not a hundred years removed from Jesus' life, yes, you're following the King, and yes, you're suffering, but you need to know that in the end, God is going to consume all of them. All of them. All of His and our enemies. And this is precisely why I I need you to hear this. This is precisely why I cannot believe in a literal calendrical thousand years or even a figurative thousand years that comes after Jesus coming back. Because if the Bible is clear about anything, it is that when Jesus comes back, there will be no mistaking that it's him and it will be the end. So you can rest in full assurance that when Jesus in glory appears, when he comes with the clouds, Paul says in First Thessalonians, that will be it and it will be the greatest day for some. And it will be the worst for others. But there will be no mistaking it and all will stand, all will stand, including you and I, before the great white throne of judgment. That is a sobering thought. Okay, <laughs> great, Elliot. You just ruined my night. What am I supposed to do that? You're supposed to be encouraged. And this is why. Because the passage ends with a throne. We said back in Revelation 4 that Revelation 4 is when all the images of Revelation began. What was the first image that we saw? A throne. Not only did we see a throne, we saw one that was seated on the throne. And where do we end? Right back in Revelation 20, but with a throne. Look at verse 4 of chapter 20. Then I saw thrones, plural, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark or their foreheads on their hands. What happens, fair question, to those that have gone before us and maybe those that we know who might die before Jesus comes back? The resounding answer of Scripture and right here in Revelation 20 is this. They will reign. They will reign. Let me run through a few verses of Revelation for you. Revelation fourteen thirteen we read that blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Why? Well, Revelation 2, verse 10, uh, Jesus said to the church at Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Physical death yields spiritual eternal life. Revelation 3.21 at the church of Laodicea, he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Well, how do we do that? We read in Revelation 12 verse 11, They have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, because they loved not their lives, even unto death. Okay, Elliot, I get that, but what about right now? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Hear this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ, with God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. I'll just be honest. I still don't even totally know what that means. But I do know what it does to me to know that I and you and I are destined to. For a throne. We are destined for a throne. It means that because I am a Christian, because I am in Christ, I know what the end has in store for me unspeakable and unimagined dignity. It means that I matter both in this life and the next. And in this life, precisely because of in the next. Played a song as you were taking your seats. And hopefully we'll play it when we're done. By Alanis Morissette from uh, the first Chronicle, Chronicles of Narnia movie. This is how the chorus goes. It's in your handout. I am a magnet for all kinds of deeper wonderment. I am a wonder kind. I am a pioneer, naive enough to believe this that I am a princess on the way to my throne, destined to seek, destined to know. So here's the question. How does it all go down? What am I supposed to do? So we're just like supposed to hunker down and hold hands and pray and sing kumbaya and hope it all works out? Are we supposed to make sure we're voting for the right political party? Do we need to make sure that the right laws and the right Supreme Court justices are coming through and down the pipe? Those are not insignificant things. not suggesting that. But no, I think it's just like the song that I am naive enough to believe. To have a simple faith that I am not an accident, nor is anything else that happens in my life an accident. Because I will reign, because He reigns without end. Amen. It's an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that we would be naive enough to believe that this is true. That it is as you have said, that you took your seat at the right hand of your Father and that all things have been placed under your feet. And not only do you rule and reign in this world, and not only do you rule and reign in our lives, but by some astounding ministry, we reign with you. We need to hear that because our lives often, so often feel like that could not be further from the truth. That we need to know that we don't need some desperate last grab at control. But we need to know that life matters. And that there are no accidents. Because you rule. We pray that you would write this truth on our hearts tonight. We pray it in your name. Amen.